0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. I have Emma Prisboslowski here uh, from Dare Venture Group. And uh, I just want to say thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, please, if you uh, enjoy the show, give us five stars and uh, subscribe. Additionally, we just rolled out that uh, donations option, so that'll be in the show notes. Uh, So if you do appreciate the show, you can uh, go ahead and send donations uh, through that way, just help make the uh, make the show uh, continue even farther. So, Emma, thanks for uh, being on the show. Go ahead and tell us about yourself.
2: Absolutely, Vader. Thanks for for having me. Uh, Emma Perszalski. I uh, I am the current CEO and co-founder of a company called Dare Dare Venture Group. And so excited to be here, uh, and completely flattered that you called me. I think you had the wrong number, but happy to be <laughs> here and excited about what you're doing.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. I appreciate it. Actually, Emma and I met a few years back. I think it was what, February of 2020, right before everything kind of blew up. Oh, and yeah. uh, we we met at the uh, AFA conference in Orlando. Uh, but so before you got to all that, kind of what was your background? Where'd you, because uh, you went to the academy and what'd you do after that before getting into the uh, defense innovation?
2: I did. Um, so when I graduated from the academy, I commissioned as an intelligence officer, and so after going through the pipeline uh, or the training pipeline down in San Angelo, I uh, was assigned to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and stumbled my way into a special operations career, actually, so I was an intelligence analyst and an operator on the soft side of the house, working primarily with the Army and the Navy
0: that's pretty sweet. So I, I don't know, cause again, yeah, that, awesome. <laughs> that, wor- that world kind of gets, uh, classified quick, you know, you can't really talk about it, but, um, what could you talk about kind of what kind of Intel they were working on or where you were going, or is that a lot of that you can't get into?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I can, I can certainly get into it. So I was fortunate enough to really start out focusing on the Southcom AOR. So South of of the United States, right? Mexico on down um, was really, although not officially in the AOR, part of the counter drug mission that I was a part of. So I was an all source analyst that was primarily focused on that problem set, um, which was fascinating, right? Because at the time, this was 2011 to 2014. um, There was a lot going on in the Middle East and Southcom in general, uh, as well as the counter drug or I guess, if you could still call it that, was definitely taking a backseat to a lot of those operations. And fortunately enough, I was able to stumble into a special operations role where I got to parlay that counterdrug all-source intelligence work into that mission space, which opened up a ton of doors in terms of, um, you know, unique and interesting opportunities uh, within that AOR. So. I got to live in Honduras for almost a year, uh, really focused on finding those centers of gravity for the cocaine business that was moving largely um, drugs, humans, um, and, and other nefarious things through the different uh, drug trafficking lanes up through Central America. So they would come up from Colombia and make their way through Honduras as a major stopping point before heading up to the United States. And we were trying to track that down and thwart those efforts uh, in any way possible. In fact, um, actually, it's kind of a funny story. That was not a counterterrorism fight, right? So your authorities looked a lot different than they did. You know, fast forwarding over to my time in the Middle East and uh we would go out and find airstrips out in the middle of nowhere in Honduras and there wasn't a whole lot that we could do about the air traffic that was coming in from Colombia on unmarked aircraft and bringing bringing um those drugs or people up through that route and so what we started doing was blowing up the airstrips so that they couldn't use them and we'd put smiley faces and, and smiley faces and explosives on the on the runways and blow the runways so that they'd be rendered useless. And we would take imagery the next day of an airplane landing right next to it. <laughs> so it was kind of a different deal. Um, and I would say it was very interesting because it was all about the information that we could have and at our fingertips um, and parlay that into policy and how the United States was shaping its policy towards uh those Central American countries. So it, was, it ended up being a much more strategic job than I was certainly qualified for, um and I got to learn a lot about uh not counterterrorism, which was really interesting.
0: Yeah, that is cool. And I think uh I I'm making some assumptions here, but I I've obviously over the years worked with um a lot of intel uh officers and everything. And one of the things I f- I feel happens in intel and kind of maybe speak to this if you have the opportunity is um some intel shops kind of get to do more enjoyable or exciting work a lot of times and then sometimes <laughs> intel shops end up just hey I I sit in the squadron because we're just training forever I don't really I do you know like uh current intel briefs or CIBs uh so I have to I have to assume that it was a very rewarding experience kind of the people you got to work with the thing you got to do was probably very enjoyable
2: Oh it was It was the best job I've ever had, besides the one I have now. Um, It was the best job I ever had. Um, And and you're absolutely right, actually, about the intelligence um, community, and especially for the Air Force. So um, the Air Force is all about, go figure the air. And because of that, um, the intelligence mission looks a lot different for core Air Force units. Uh, You're a fighter pilot, uh, so you know the drill, Uh, Intel, usually an Intel chick, although there's and guys in the career field uh, gets up in front of the squadron and, and gives you the threat of the day or some threat intel brief and tells you the weather and and that's the extent of their job, um, which is great and incredibly necessary as I'm sure you experienced while you were flying and continue to fly, um, but I think that on the other side of the house, the one that I was I was privy to, we got to get our hands a lot more dirty, um, and that actually uh, was incredibly um obvious when i moved out of counter drug and into counterterrorism so after leaving the counter drug mission i became part of the soft the proper soft community um, and was working under AFSOC but attached to a lot of tier one and tier two units out there um, working very niche problem sets from a targeting standpoint in, um, places like Africa, Yemen, um, uh, obviously Iraq, when we went back in there, as well as Afghanistan. And that opened my eyes up, um, to really what, what an Intel, um, a- a operator Intel officer had the ability to go do. And that's not common in the air force. Um, Unfortunately, because I think that it's a great career field to go cut your teeth and learn some incredible skills that I've now been able to parlay and do amazing things that we get to work on every day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that my experience was completely different than a lot of other people's, and I wouldn't change it for anything. It was the time of my life. Uh, I was younger, my knees hurt less, and I could do a lot more, <laughs> get around a lot easier, and didn't need as much sleep as I do now. So, it, uh, it was an incredible opportunity to serve. And I'm so thankful I got, I got it every single day. I'm thankful for it.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I think, you know, you're young and you're dumb and you don't really know what's out there and what, what's going on. And so I was, you know, gotten to pilot training. and was like, I want to fly fighters. Cause I can't think of anything, you know, more fun to do in an airplane than fly a fighter. And then you hear about, it's a great job. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. I mean, I still do it obviously, but you hear about all these other things that are so much more impactful. You hear about, you know, there's, you know, U28s and other platforms that don't inherently seem as like sexy of an airplane. But then you you see the people that they get to in a- interact with and they're working with tier one people. And then you meet those people and you're like, these people are just amazingly ex- exceptional because they're, they're intelligent, they're driven, and they're they're freaks of nature because they're physically just able to do things that I can only imagine and you're like, "Yeah, okay, like flying fighters is cool, but you're like an F-16 in the stack with you know MQ9s, AC-130s, pretty much everyone else is prioritized over an F-16 cuz they're like, "Hey, you don't you don't fit in our tier 1 game plan because we're kind of not the big boom kind of thing. We're looking for almost anything else. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I was, I was lucky to at least just be in the stack and kind of watch these things happen and just watch exceptional, exceptional people do exceptional things. Uh, so I can only imagine kind of getting into work form and, and kind of feeling that you can do the, the work you do does good for those people. So that's, that's great. So, uh, so yeah, and you know,
2: to, just to add on to that oh, sorry yeah. vader um very good the one thing that stood out the most um to me in my experience that um i am sad for those that don't get to go down the same path because it's one of those skill sets i mentioned earlier that you just get in that community is um there's a level of competency obviously and that's the same in in your community certainly uh, there's level of competency that's just table stakes, right, for being for being there. Yep. But on top of that, the way that that community bobs and weaves around to get to yes is invaluable. Uh, and that's why they're as good as they are, because they figure out together in an incredibly small team dynamic how to get to yes. And uh, that was something that I don't know how your experience has been um, in a fighter squadron and I certainly have not been part of that community in that capacity, but that was something that blew me away about working in, in those circles.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, I'm kind of out of my depth here, like with most things, but, uh, you know, I just outside, yeah, outside looking in, I feel the, uh, what they do really well is they, they can kind of, you know, the, you know, slow, slow, is smooth and smooth as fast kind of thing where they'll slow down and they'll really try to synthesize down problem sets into the most simplest form and really attack it in the most uh, effective way. And that's probably an objective, but then that's also how to get to yes. And I think the fighter community does a really bad job of that. And I, I make this complaint uh, to my fellow fighter pilots and anybody who will listen is we know how to problem solve. We know how to take this massive problem set And you're given, you know, hey, here is your objective, achieve it. And then you and 70 of your friends go out and achieve this objective. And you do it in a safe manner. And then we step out of the jet, we step out of the vault. And then we become, you know, a, a squadron commander or something, or we just, we're now a major with an objective to achieve. And we just, it all goes out the window and you're like, you already know how to solve this. Like, you know how to like, and you know, I said this the other day, like ME3CPC three squared is like the mission planning cycle where you literally like step by step by step. If you do these things, you're going to find yourself successful. Uh, so I think we need to do a better job and take uh, from the tier one kind of tactical side and apply that because I think fighter pilots, you know, if it's not flying related, it doesn't seem fun we just scoff it, uh, to, to our own fault. Um, so after, after you got out of that and, uh, doing all that awesome stuff, which I'm, I'm, uh, jealous. Well, actually one, one story, uh, I feel like the other Intel officers, so the Intel officers who didn't get to do awesome things and hang out with operators, uh, some of them were hanging out with me. And I think I was like their worst enemy because again, sometimes you make the brief, and you know more in depth than the brief covers. And sometimes your friend made the brief and you're just briefing it because you're briefing on Wednesday. And then I would ask questions. So they'd say like, hey, this surface air missile is highly mobile. Well, I'm like, well, what does that mean, though? Like, what are you telling me? Is that like seconds? Is that minutes? Is that half an hour? And so they'd be like, I don't know, dude. Like, you know, and uh, so I feel like they probably hated like seeing me in the- No, they did. Yeah, they were like, <laughs> this guy, just- <laughs> they did.
2: They're like, if Vader asked me one more question, <laughs> I swear
0: to God. Oh, I guarantee, I guarantee you. They're, you know, hopefully if we have enough listener base, there'll be an Intel person that emails you and they're gonna be like, oh man, you are exactly right. Cause, cause again, like I wasn't doing it to be a jerk. I truly wanted to know because like, my tactic is predicated off of knowing these things. Uh, so I would just ask the question. They probably were just like, you're the worst, but okay. So shifting gears, uh, you're, you're separating from the military. So how does that process go? Do you, do you, are you falling without a shoot for a while? Or like where do you end up immediately after you get out of the military and what did that look like for you?
2: Yeah. So, um, because I got to work with amazing people and have some really cool capabilities at our fingertips to uh, do bad things to bad people. Yes. Um, I fell absolutely in love during that job, uh, that last job that I had in the, in the Air Force with the ability to better shape you know, a warfighting space or just the, the capabilities my friends could use in that space um, to lay down the effects that they want or find out the information that they want um, better. And so I was hooked on the technology industry from uh, from the second that me getting out was even that thought in my mind. I knew that I wanted to go into tech. And I was fortunate enough to go through a program called Quald and was part of, I believe the second cohort, because this was this was a while ago back in 2016 and uh this this program was i mean changed my life to be honest with you i'll forever be indebted to that team selecting me for their program and it was all about so jim sheriff was was the head honcher head honcho and creator of of this program and he had been an executive at cisco which is a major technology company and while he was there, he had noticed that there were significant qualities that came out of military personnel that were either retiring or separating, that the tech industry writ large was missing out on because they didn't understand the translation of skill set into this the, their new industry or into tech the tech industry. And his whole mission in life was to teach people like me separating from the military to translate those skill sets into tangible benefits for a tech company to take advantage of as an employee or as an employer. And so I went through this program, went through the training and it was really cool. Cause at the end of it, they also did job placement and that was part of their business model. It was a, it was a great model um, and continues to be There's They're still doing amazing things. Um, and I got placed at a tech company that sold everything, basically, in Denver, Colorado. It was a company at the time called Global Technology Resources Incorporated, GTRI. Um, and they, man, God bless them. They rolled the dice on me for sure, not knowing what they were going to get, um, but being believers in the, in the program. And at the time, uh, some of their leadership had been former uh, military themselves, so that always helped. Yeah. And they hired me. And I moved back to Denver and started learning what the heck technology was. Um, I met a very, very good friend uh, who continues to be a, a very good friend and mentor um, in every sense of the word, named Andrew Tennant. He was working as a chief technologist basically at GTRI. And he took me under my, his wing and taught me about the ways that tech comes together to solve problems on the backside. And uh, I really didn't look back. So from there, I went to a larger software company called Citrix had an amazing team um, and and partner that I worked for named Brian Olson. He was my sales engineer and man, we just went all over the country um, working on commercial uh, problems that Citrix could solve. And then I got a phone call from um, another Air Force Academy grad. He's a 2004 grad, Casey Weinstein. And he said, hey, Emma, I've, you know, I think there's an opportunity that I would love to have you for, but you got to come back and work with the government. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time I was like, no, like I separate from the Air Force. I'm trying to run as far away as I can from that and be in tech. He's like, no, no, no. I don't think you understand. Um, We're here at Gartner, which is the company I went to. uh, We're trying to bring the best tech advisory services possible back. Um, to the government, and we want you to work with the Air Force and and what 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 became the Space Force. And would you would you want to do that? And I was like, man, I gotta think about this. And uh, it came down to the fact that i I actually really missed that community and missed uh, the brotherhood that you know and love, right? That exists throughout that that community. And so I took the job and said, all right, I'm gonna serve from this side of the table. Let's see how it goes and it took off um casey and i built an incredible business together um ran with a great portfolio and and built some incredible customer relationships solving some big problems uh and then i got a wild hair that i wanted to do it for myself uh, and work in a small business versus a publicly traded corporation and uh, that takes me to about a year ago a little over a year ago um, starting dare so here i am
0: well that's awesome It seems like, so this is one question that I have uh, a lot of people ask me and I actually have the same question is, so the standard thing is, you know, pilot is going to separate from the air force and where are they going to go get a job at the airlines? Yeah. And so it's like, do I want to do that? Like, again, it is chill. It's not as high speed. It's not intense. You know, it's none of those things or it shouldn't be. If it's intense and high speed, then there's probably a problem. Uh, and the pay's good, but it's really difficult for a guy like myself who, who needs to stay busy for a lot of my fellow fighter pilots who want to stay busy to, to just kind of relegate themselves to that lifestyle. And I feel like innovation and kind of this space, that kind of defense space is a great way to kind of blur that line of like, Hey, I have a lot of experience in the DOD, a lot of experiences being the end user of things but people don't know how to go from I'm the military member to I'm the person in your shoes now. So what would you say if you could kind of, cause you've had this like wonderful experience where you had good experience after good, like a good experience and then better experiences. And now you're kind of doing your own thing. What would you say for the person trying to follow in your path? What should they do? Yeah,
2: that's a good question <laughs> because I think that there's, just asking the hard-hitting questions.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's what we're here for.
2: Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have the silver bullet for this because I think that there's multiple pathways that have been opened up since I initially clearly stumbled my way into where I am now. Um, I think the most important thing, first and foremost, is leaning into your network. There are so many incredible people that are in this ecosystem within DoD Innovation in general that want people that want to be there and they we I mean as a country cannot afford to bleed the mission knowledge and expertise um, from people that are getting out and leave the community altogether. Um, and so there is such an incredible need and want to insulate those people and their knowledge back into the ecosystem in whatever capacity. And I mean COVID was terrible right but some really good things came out of COVID like flexible work situations and businesses being a lot more amenable to unique arrangements with the right people that they want on their team. And so I think just really understanding that you have options based on your network and that you can play with those options um, to find something that works best for you is key. Um, And to your point about going to the airlines, like I have guys that I love that work with me on some pretty amazing projects. They are also flying for the airlines. So oh. nobody says that you, you can't have it all, right? It's yeah. just what's tenable and what you can manage as, as an individual. So I think there's a ton of appetite out there to kind of write your own story and you just have to be bold enough and, and willing to take a little bit of uncertainty going forward. Um, but if you're hooked up with the right people in your network, like, they're not gonna let you fail.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one, I mean, speaking specifically, you know, in my experience, up until I started doing the innovation stuff, literally eight, 10 months before I separated the air force. I I mean, you literally were my network to the defense innovation space. I knew a person, you, you and, uh, coach Catton, you remember, uh, Jack Catton, he was a retired two star. I do, boom. I do. Literally, yes, he's wonderful. The, yeah, he's great. And but literally, the only two people I knew in the whole space. So, I think that's one thing. Again, because you know, we we do a poor job of actually getting out of our our vault and out of our you know squadron bar, and actually meeting other people and interacting and actually showing people like, hey, I have interest. Because I think, I agree with you. People probably want to hire these guys but they don't even know that those guys want the job, you know? And then those guys are like, well, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess we'll just go to the airlines cause everybody goes to the airlines and they never even pursue it. Cause I legitimately three or four friends of mine who I've just worked with flown fighters with around the world over the years are like, Hey man, like we, we, you know, it's like all of us. It's like, Hey, we're all going to work in uh, defense innovation. I'm like, yeah, totally. Like when, when the time comes, like I think we can make that happen because it's a cool space. It's, it's exciting to work on stuff and just like you said like having the ability to do things having our hard work benefit those that are still doing the job that's that's the best thing I could do you know I've talked about my limited experience with uh innovation at Holloman and I saw almost none of it but what I did find out is people will text me and say hey that's pretty cool or you know, find out a company that I was working with got funding and they're rolling some of the programs out. And that's cool. Like that, that was the thing. So I think there's definitely for all the innovation companies, all the companies in the space, there are a ton of people who are wildly good at their job and just learning new things. I mean, there's, if there's one thing that, you know, being a pilot and specifically fighter pilot requires you to do is constantly learn. And if you're not, you're not going to be a good pilot, so you're probably not going to do it for a long time. But those, uh, you know, your weapons officers, your test pilots, your your fighter pilots who take it seriously, like that's, they're going to be good because they just keep trying and they don't get intimidated easily by, you know, big challenges. I think a lot of it's you you don't know what you don't know, and so I mean. As a pilot, you live, and I—I I mean, you know this obviously. You, you're uh, married to one, so, but uh, you live your life. You find out your next week's schedule on Thursday afternoon, the week prior. So you're like, "Oh, what am I doing Wednesday? I don't know. It's not 5 p.m. on Thursday yet." And uh, so you're like, "That's that's crazy." Uh, and you know, talking to so many people who've who've moved on to different professions, they just say like, "You don't even know." how different life can be on the other side uh, because you're just so used to this like extreme end of the whip that you just live on for at least a decade you know
2: totally and um, you make a really good point about um, the want wanting to learn and i think that anyone that interested remotely in going into innovation in general but certainly for dod has to have that hunger um, because things change, although not as rapidly you know, as they do on the commercial side, but it's an incredibly dynamic environment and ecosystem and nobody has the answer to everything. And the hunger to learn more about those different things and then connect with the right people that are experts in those areas is what drives success within within this ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I I wouldn't say it's a a certainty, you know, you, you hire a military member. It's not a guarantee that they're going to be a complete touchdown. Uh, But some of the people that are, that are wanting to get into the space, they are, they're hungry, they're driven, they're dedicated, they're motivated. They're these tier one type people. They just happen to fly fighters instead of do tier one stuff. And, uh, and yeah, like I, you know, not that my word means anything in the innovation space, but if someone said like, should we hire this guy? I'd say in a heartbeat, I'd hire him to do any job that I could think of because he's better than me at everything and in every way. So it's like, why wouldn't I want him to get that job? So yeah, I, I hope if, if there are opportunities out there for like the, the military transition that you experienced, or if there's other ones, I hope I find out about them, you know, if not for me, but for my bros, uh, because that's, I think that'd be great. And there could be a ton whether it's a part-time gig cuz they do go to the airlines or it's their full-time job like there's a ton of talent that that gets lost like you said previously the the tech sector didn't even understand the utility that could come from military members uh but hopefully they're learning that more and hopefully there's some some opportunities created uh maybe from this podcast who knows the uh gosh
2: I hope so we we love having former operators like yourself coming back and and wanting to be a part of it in any way and um, like I said I think you can kind of write your own script nowadays uh, which is really intriguing I think to a lot of people it doesn't have to be like it always has been where you do a nine-to-five in an office or a traditional airline only job for a lot of you guys but um, yeah I think that there's just a ton of different opportunities you just got to talk to people and I mean you're doing it right now Vader. You reach out to to people to scope out what's going on, um, and that is the first step for sure. And like I said, people are really warm. I found I have found them to be really receptive in this space um, to just to reach out and like tell me what you're doing. Uh, how can I help fold you into the bigger picture? Um, how where can I help you? Uh, it's an incredibly collaborative environment that is just starving for people like you um, and others like you that have that mission expertise for sure.
0: Well, that's good. And and I agree. I mean, in my experience, people have been amazing. Like right now, one, we have the ability because we're all so connected via LinkedIn and all these different, you know, uh, social medias. And so the the world has, has shrunken aggressively. You know, if we were trying to do this in the early 2000s, it would be very difficult to kind of get the platform and get the forum to even get your name out there. And now, exactly like you said, I just send a message. And I'm like, Hey, would you, would you like to do this? And everybody's been amazing. I mean, you know, you being helpful and, and coming on the show and just being so open and saying like, Hey, look at Like, these are other people who would, who'd want to be a part of this. That's been, that's been awesome. And, and, you know, luckily everybody's been the same way. So like conversations that I was like, I shouldn't be in this conversation with this person. It were, it's happened and, and relatively fast. So that's cool. So let's jump into, uh, okay into so dare so can you can you break it down like what exactly are you doing where are you guys working where what's your focus on uh in dare
2: yeah so gosh um there's a real so as you step back and you take a look at dod innovation there's kind of this crossroads that I found myself at in terms of reflecting on the problem and trying to understand what is the broader reason that there's the valley of death, for example, or how come it takes so long to get user input to define and give a capability that that user's ultimately going to want and employ. And as I and my thesis only, right, Um, and what we came up with at, at the company is there's kind of a two front problem. And they're standing on two sides of the riverbank, if you will. So on the one side, you've got, you've got the warfighter and because of the pace of the threat environment in a lot of places, uh, their capability needs list or their list to Santa, if you will, continues to get longer and honestly more complex as the, as you really dig into what it's going to take to remain in the position that we are as a global power which is arguably being questioned on a daily basis, right? Just by world events and what's going on. So you've got this list. It's growing. Um, A lot of of the people that are building those lists are either not users themselves or it's a user that's in perhaps a staff job for a stint. And maybe it's a guy like you, Vader, who's an F-16 pilot and you're an incredible, you're the best F-16 pilot on the planet, like you told me. And, uh, and, uh, but you're not a data scientist. You don't have a degree in artificial intelligence practices or know you know, the ins and outs of machine learning or quantum computing. Um, and unfortunately, some of the things that you're asking for from a capability standpoint include some of those concepts and how the heck are you going to solve for that? Um, you know, the mission really well, and you know exactly what you want to do with it, but there's something to be desired probably in terms of knowing what's the right move to build what it is that I'm looking for. And now on the flip side of the, the riverbank, on the other side of that, you've got, you've got the angry villagers. They're not angry, but you got all these villagers with you know, their pitchforks and they got their torches and they're amassing. And those represent really all of the tech companies that are popping up. I mean, there's a new innovative tech company every single day. And they're knocking on the DoD door individually pitching, hey, I got this really cool thing. You gotta, you gotta hear about how I solve this incredibly unique bespoke problem. And you gotta bring it into the DOD because you're gonna pay me a ton of money for this. And those crowds are getting bigger and bigger. And the problem is that they have no idea how to articulate what they do back to you on the other side of the war of the riverbank. Um they don't understand what you're telling them you're going to use it for because they've never been in that situation. And they don't know what other villagers around them would probably form the best team to do something for you on the other side of the riverbank. So D.A.R.E. at its heart is is building the bridge between. Um, so we are incredibly laser focused on being first mission expertise and representing that warfighter to provide guys like you trying to figure out what the heck... Um, to do to solve for a capability gap bandwidth. So someone that can think like you and knows how to fight like you, um, we we love having those mission experts and we go after brand name people. We want the very best from mission areas that are known and have great reputations. And we also want to pair that with those innovative technologies that make sense in order to tie a package up with a bow and hand it back to the warfighter and say, all right. Here's your new thing. What's next? And then and and move on. And I'm oversimplifying for sure because we also have to do that. I forgot to mention that the raging river below us is the DoD acquisition system, <laughs> and so it's it's tumultuous, right? And you're building a bridge while standing on one leg in the middle of water that's rising, and it's just chaos. Um, but we firmly believe that. There's a lot of very small businesses out there that could be incredibly tremendous assets uh, to the warfighter capability toolbox, if you will, that we, we want to help put together. So that's what, what we focus on, primarily in the operations and intelligence space, because it's what we know, um, although we're starting to figure out how to branch out from there. So um, yeah, that's who we are what we're doing.
0: That's pretty, I mean, that is effectively what drove me to make this podcast because exactly what you're saying is we have this 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 performance gap or this just gap in the ability to to truly get the end user and the person who's going to produce the result like the the solution to communicate effectively and you know it's that that whole problem of like are you communicating or are you communicating effectively? Uh, because it, cause it matters. There's a big difference. And one of my buddies, uh, he also went to the academy, graduated. Uh, I'll brag for him. He graduated number one in computer science. Uh, and oh, he, dang. Yeah, and he went on. <laughs> that was go, not me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> n- neither neither me. I took uh, took six 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 and a half years in college, so uh, I took my sweet time. But uh, definitely didn't go to the academy. But uh, but he.
2: You had more fun than we did. Yeah, so well, that's, right but choice. you know, I.
0: I uh, I wouldn't have survived the academy. I know that now. Uh, but the uh, but he, uh, awesome dude, big brain, great fighter pilot, and he's both. He computer science. He has his masters in it. And when he sees a problem, he's literally created a mission planning website. Because he was like, well, none meet meet my needs, so he just makes it himself. And but he understands both sides, and he does that. And it, and so working with him and just seeing how he approaches a problem with his tactical understanding, but then also being able to apply his computer science background and then be able to speak the language of of both sides is is impressive, and and it's been enlightening to me uh, just to see how he does that and how the whole problem is because you're exactly right. Like we, I think every person who spent any time in the military can tell you about a program that was built with no end user input and it's probably not a great one. And you, you know, you go around, I, cause I'm transitioning to the F-15C now. So, uh, you assume again, in my ignorance, I'm like, obviously over the decades, the DOD has said, we found out the best way for a human to interact with a machine and we've optimized all the buttons and the switches and everything. So every jet is pretty close because we, it's, you know, the human optimization, not at all. The F 16 to the F 15 C wildly different, almost like they made them different on purpose uh, because they're so, so different. Uh, but I guarantee each, each company came to their solution either without input from an end user or the input from an end user, but they're different end users. Uh, So it's definitely important to have that input uh, and be able to have that iterative process where it's kind of like, hey, you you build a portion, get some feedback, build more of it, get some feedback, rather than this massive program that just gets plopped into the DoD. And they're like, hey, see what you can make out of it. And you're like, well, we're probably not going to get a ton of goodness from this.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned, since you brought it up, (laughs) you talk a lot about platform acquisition, right? Which uh, there's a lot of really, really smart people, most of them live in D.C., um, that talk about that being the absolute wrong approach for our future, too. Um, and, And dumping a lot of the resourcing that we have into creating those platforms differently, right? And having each program be a standalone program, which there's a need for, but looking so different across the fleet is hamstringing us. Um, And if you take it a layer down, you know, sure, we need great platforms and weapon systems. Absolutely. We have a fundamental, incredibly serious challenge in front of us as a country, really, when you start to get down into the way technology is underpinning information flow just that alone. So think about, think about the data layers that are involved with everything that we've touched upon today. That's changed significantly over the last several decades. And we have not kept up because we've been spoiled fighting in the Middle East where we had incredible intelligence access, for example, or were able to employ precision weapons you know, very easily. And we're not going to be faced with that. Going forward, so while the platform approach um, and the focus on that is is equally as important, my biggest beef in all the people I talk to and all the challenges I get to pull out of customers almost always right now comes down to, but yeah, I can't do anything with the data coming off of all these exquisite sensors and platforms, and that's a foul because we're going to get punched in the face by a pretty formidable enemy one day who's just going to send a tidal wave of noise and overwhelming amounts of data our way. And we're not gonna have, right now, we don't have a great way to sift through that and understand which way is up.
0: Yeah, and I think we, I'm talking to another uh, company, Crowdbotics, they're they're kind of- They're great. Yeah, they're awesome, and they're data analytics. And the, the Air Force specifically is so good at capturing data. Every single sortie that's flown, we download the lines, we have it all. But we don't do anything. We're, we're like hoarders of digital data, and you go onto like a network drive for a base, and it's terabytes of just old data. If anything, it's a great way to to like have a like a counter espionage because they're going to be sifting through like leave tracker from two thousand four on the you know base drive. But you're like, there's yeah, we we need to do something because exactly like you said, we we can't just assume the old process is going to be sufficient because the tier one operators do not just say, well, what we did previously is going to work. And you know, if you're talking like, Hey, we have coins. So counterinsurgency versus MCO. So uh military contested offs. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, uh yeah, good. I'm always terrible at the acronyms. Cause there's like, Thousands of them. Uh, but coin is, hey, counterinsurgency, you're fighting ISIS versus MCO, you're fighting another effectively state, it's uh, another country. Uh, so what you end up finding is we now have a problem where if we just try to take our coin tactics and techniques and our procedures to fight an MCO fight it's going to go poorly. And I think that's exactly what you're saying is like, we can't just assume the stuff that did work is still going to work because the foe is not the same foe. We have a bigger problem here. So what yeah, would you,
2: you're, you're spot on. So Sorry, what, go ahead.
0: if you, uh, because I don't really know what's kind of in the works and all that stuff, because I'm not super wise on everything. What would you say are some really cool things that you're like, that is game changing. That's, that's making some noise in the space in a really good way.
2: Oh gosh, it's hard to nail um it's hard to nail that down. Um the things that I find most interesting because I'm an Intel nerd, is anything that would help condense the time from sensor to shooter. And so any any way to compress and condense the kill web um, or kill chain is money. That's that's the name of the game, um, especially as you start to understand or formulate some opinions about what we might be up against. So in that space, in and of itself, uh, to your point, we collect more data than we'll ever be able to do anything with. Um, Where there is a lag, in my opinion, and that we try to row the boat on um, pretty regularly with the various projects that we touch, is making sense of that data, so sense-making. We don't need all of it, right? But gosh, wouldn't it be nice if you could reach down and grab the anomalies that matter to you uh, and store the rest for future analysis if you need it or dump it if you don't, because at some point we're gonna run out of storage. Um, And being able to first just separate the wheat from the chaff from a a data perspective or an Intel perspective, if you will, um, critical. And we're getting better at it. And there's a lot of pockets of of really cool success that I've seen in the customer space. Uh, there's a project actually out at Nellis Air Force Base in the 59th that is all about jet data. And they're chewing through how do we um, make sense of all of the bits and bytes that we collect on a daily sortie basis. Um, so there's pockets of, of these grassroots efforts um, And I really, really have full faith, I don't know about faith, I have a ton of hope in JADC2 because the concepts that are being touted at the highest levels regarding JADC2 are are in absolute certainty the direction that we need to head as a fighting force, period dot. And we have to figure out a way to unpoliticize that and to make some movement in that direction um, and that's happening as well. So as those things start coming together, I think we'll see more progress by way of a more strategic effort, but the data sense making is, uh, man, it's a, it's a really, really, um, tough thing to, to deal with.
0: I think one, uh, one thing term you used, which I think is, is good. And I think it's a good way to approach a tactical problem is the, uh, the kill web instead of the kill chain or the mosaic of information because <laughs> they've, yeah, we've kind of changed our perspective because it used to be this very linear progression of get information for a target and then lit in a linear way, provide that to the end operator who's going to execute the order. But what you find out is that makes it very easy to stop that kill chain because it's a chain, you yep. know, one failed link. But now if you have a web or a mosaic, you remove one piece, and it is still very much viable and that's like uh i don't I don't think I know hundred percent the jad c two, but that's just more the overarching control like command and control is that accurate
2: yeah, and there's there's gosh, so many lines of effort that would fall under a joint all domain command and control is the official title, um but most specifically. Uh, what I find interesting is the progress that is being made um, in that data domain in terms of moving from collect to secure transport to somebody that needs to see it or to a shooter as quickly as possible. Um, it's it's just, it'll make or break us in, in my opinion. Um, and I would tell you, unfortunately, so the flip side of that and the challenges that are really hindering, I think a lot of progress there is um, just the ability to bring projects on fast enough. Um, There's a lot of legacy systems we can't just scrap and build from the ground up to make it work perfectly within a, a construct that best suits the kill web. We have to be able to utilize legacy systems and integrate new technologies on top of them. And man, the policy hurdles that are in place for that I mean, any, I would argue that most people in this ecosystem that are are working on things that you and I are talking about, that's the number one gripe, is I can't get in to make this work with your system. So instead of just buying a, a bolt-on that would enhance what it is that you're looking for, um, you're potentially talking about completely building something from the ground up. And it it's not cost-effective. It takes forever. And by the time it gets delivered, it's irrelevant. Um, so we just got to change the way that we think about how we advance our capabilities because it's just so different than our experiences over the last hundred years.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, the this, this stuff you're saying, it's like the, my ideas are like overflowing. I hope I can keep track of them all because there's so many problems. Like one, the, the ability to take new tech and new data gathering and, and data dispersion into legacy aircraft i mean the, i think the f-15 uh recently I, i'd say well i'll say today i think but you know i guess you know recording and then when i put this out but uh the reality is the f-15 just hit its 50 year anniversary so we're talking about taking tech from 2022 and integrating it into an f-15 a b-52 you know an f-16 like all these platforms and you're like we. Yeah. Like the, the code that was written in these jets, people don't even know how to write that code anymore. You know? So you're like, Oh, we're supposed to integrate all these platforms, but our platforms are outdated and then get a new bolt on piece of equipment or, or just don't let that aircraft play in the, in the new data transfer. And you're like, these are massive problems. And the fact that, that there is any sort of like sides on this rather than hey this is a problem set that is a very big one and i would say not getting into too much detail but what the united states has on its side is the ability to mass its entire might in a massive war it's not
2: 100 percent.
0: yeah it's not the f-22 it's not the f-35 it's not the c model it's not the carrier strike group it's not the aegis it's not space. It's not the, you know, the B2. It's all of them. It's every single one working together. And that's where the mosaic comes in. That is the web where you go and then you do the desert storm thing. You do the thing that's like, who they kicked down the door and they did it with ferocity. And that's the thing that we have to keep because if we don't have that, like the tactical edge or the, the technological edge, like we're, we're, it's it's not a this like massive uh g- gap in performance anymore. It's not where we mm-hmm. back in the day were just like worlds ahead of the of the adversary. So the fact that we're going to be near near it's it's always tough at this point, you know, but the uh to kind of say the right words and not get yourself in trouble, but the Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. but it's it's having an adversary that is very formidable and you're not gonna, you're not gonna just be able to have a bad day, and it work out. And I think that is a thing that, that people have to understand. And I think people because for the, a long time, it's just been like, yeah, we're the best, we're the, you know, biggest, baddest, you know, military in town. And it's, we people need to understand like that, that was a thing. And it could be a thing again. But it's, it's not like it's, it's not a guaranteed uh, thing. So no, I think yeah. you're exactly right. And
2: you know, you're, you're, well, you're spot on. And I would almost say, so there's debate, right, on how formidable some alleged future foe might, might actually be or where they're currently at. And frankly, I don't, who cares? Who cares about, you know, how far along they are? I mean, we, we care. But, but what they also have going for them that I think causes us to maybe pause and have to change the way we just fight is the tyranny of distance? We don't for every single conflict we've been in, we've been able to preposition assets and reach out and touch somebody, right? Uh, that global dominance is much tougher when you think about maybe having to go go west of California, right? Um, Which is the speed and it takes just for naval assets to get across that way, and what squatting ducks some of our our most important air assets could be as they're rolling into you know, some sort of engagement zone or even just being detected. So I think that it's just really interesting because it's forcing, I think it's forcing us to really think differently about the way we present our forces. And because of that, we have to rely on something different, right? And That's something different, in my opinion, is grasping a lot of technology concepts that have been fastly moving on the commercial side of the house. Um, And so you have to get smart on those. You have to understand how maybe you turn a particular technology 45 degrees this way, and then it's the perfect puzzle piece in a warfighting scenario. But just the willingness to be able to go out and do that is certainly there. Uh, We just need to be faster about it.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it's funny because we almost have we've had too much of a luxury of, we've had the information we want. We can, we can kind of manage the space. We have had uncontested airspace, but you think back to world war two, where it was literally like, Hey, here's a picture of the thing you're supposed to hit, go out, come back, tell me if you hit it. And that was it, you know, and then they would come back and be like, "Ah, I missed. And then the, you know, the next day they do it all over again. And, and now we just, real-time data and understanding everything, it's almost like we've become too reliant on the ability to stay ahead of it. And we don't understand that like the fog and friction of war is a reality and you, you can't just assume you're going to, you're going to be able to stay ahead of it or even have solid data to where you're like, I know this to be true. You're, you're going to have to go on assumptions and let the, you know, the whole centralized, what is it? Uh, centralized control, decentralized execution, it's, uh, I forget it because that's not actually how we operate. So nobody actually does that. But, uh, but you know, at some point that's going to be the case, you're going to have to let the end user make decisions and just report back rather than have your effectively your imaginary, you know, thumb on the button.
2: Yeah. And they need to have those, the ability to do that, to operate in a decentralized fashion, which means they need to have the information at least flowing quickly, if not organic um, ability to make decisions and change game plans on the fly there locally. Um, and I, you and I don't even need to go into the ATO process as it stands now, but it's not going to do it. <laughs> so
0: We have to assume like the CDO contested degraded ops. Like you just have to assume you're not going to have everything you want no matter what, like things are going to be taken away, whether it's because the, the machine that loads the crypto in the airplane broke, or because you can't get it or because it's, you know, whatever reason something is denied. So just assume you have to assume you're going to be fighting with one arm behind your back. Uh, so shifting gears, unless you have something else to say on that, um, the oh, acquisition, the acquisition. I feel good process. about that.
2: That was yeah. a good, that was a good <laughs> segment. I really feel that was a good therapy session for me. So yeah, I, appreciate I know. It. <laughs> I always,
0: uh, I was, I was on uh, rain waters, the afterburn podcast and a great dude. He was, a. Uh, he was a FAPE when I was going through pilot training and, um, but it was like this, just this like fighter pilot gripe session. Like we were just complaining and I was like, I don't want to get into it. Like, I don't want to get into it. And then finally I was like, all right, you know, uh, but there's, you, but you don't. make it too easy. Well, that, but it's the thing you want to, I, when I was young, I would just, I would just complain all the time. And then I realized there's, there's like that diminishing returns, like complaining's good because it can help you kind of identify problems. But then if all you do is complain, you're just that like negative dude. And it's like, okay, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So uh, the acquisitions process, this is one of the things that I assume is the case. And you've kind of spent a lot more time in the space. So maybe you can kind of enlighten me. Acquisition seems like the private sector and all these companies doing awesome stuff move way faster than the DOD is able to onboard these things. Is that what your experience has been? And like, what do you see if that is the case? What is the solution?
2: Oh, man. Uh, uh, Yes, I cannot. If I could be seen jumping up and down on a desk saying, yes, 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 that's our number one problem, you would see it. Um, So it's too slow. I mean, just so the bigger companies don't deal with the same problems that I certainly do, right? So primes like Boeing and Lockheed, um, and the mid-tier integrators that have been at this for a while, like like Parsons, um, they have their own different set of isms, I think, they go through when you talk about the acquisition process. And I'm by no means an acquisitions officer with all this expertise. I've learned a lot in the last few years, um, but certainly phone friends whenever I have big, big questions Um So if we just take a step back and and look at this from my purview, which is starting a small business in the defense space. The, well, for for starters, I can't do business directly with the government. So my customer can't reach out and touch me immediately. Um, I have to be incredibly savvy in terms of finding other transaction authorities. That's a way they can get directly to me if they're willing to do it. Um, I can put in... I can't even tell you how many man hours into writing SBIR um, con- contract proposals that are released, what, three times a year by the Air Force, calling for innovative topics and companies that think they can solve problems. The P win on that, pretty low. Um, unless you have one ri- written, you know, that's for you and you're kind of being shepherded. So uh, I'm fortunate that I know this space really, really well and have been able to maneuver accordingly. Um, and have incredible friends that I call and say, help, I don't know what I'm doing. And they're always amazing, back to that um, ecosystem friendliness. Uh, but for someone that is a tech company that has like a really cool niche something product um, that has nothing to do with the DoD, but identifies a way that they could help the warfighter, there's, they, the barriers to entry are enormous. And so right at the front door, Um, we lose all kinds of companies that would be incredibly beneficial to use for dual use technology application in the government and DOD because of how hard we've made it as a government to do business with them. And then they have to go figure out, okay, so if I'm not, if I can't contract directly with the government, I'm not going to win a SIVR, I'll be a sub. And I'll sub under one of these other big companies that can do business with the government. Well, you're going to lose a rake So they'll take a rake of a percentage, which is fine, whatever. Um, But then you're answering to that prime company instead of the customer. There's a lot of convoluted back and forth sometimes, or it can be. Uh, I would say not all primes are created equal. And so you get treated differently under that umbrella. Um, And if you don't have that network in place, which a lot of these companies do not because they haven't been in this space, you don't know what you're getting. And you could work for a company that's stealing your ip i mean there's just so many scenarios that are like any i and i say this i say this tongue in cheek a little bit because i need these people to want to do this with the government for us to be successful but i'm anyone that asks me like hey should i do this my first answer is first of all why and second of all no like unless you have a booming commercial business that you can anchor yourself to, do not have the government as your only customer. Um, and even, I just think twice. Like make sure that's what you want to go down, the path you want to go down. And so, from an acquisition standpoint, I don't know how you fix that, because there's also a funding, like there's a funding funding funnel that you have to go through. And it gets bottlenecked and there's just not enough money to do all of the things and so i don't have a good answer for you vader on how this gets fixed i can selfishly say i need people to give us more money and they need to do it faster Um, that would be my solution (laughs) Um, but it's just a really tough balancing act right Um, and you mentioned earlier about users not necessarily getting involved in the requirements process early enough And that is also a factor. So you end up building things that don't even get used and that's wasteful. And it's just kind of a circus sometimes to deal with. Um, And just as a side note, like the one thing I tell anyone that's thinking about coming back into this is like, and someone told me this, so I'm totally pilfering it and passing it on. You have to be willing to be persistent. And this is a long game. Um being successful in this space takes a long time, and it takes a ton of headache from banging your head on a wall um and all of it seems to come down to a lot of acquisition bottlenecking in my in my experience
0: and I think that was that was one of the things that i so I envisioned, again, as being a fighter pilot, you assume you you can figure out the solution, but you probably can't. You'll just get, you know, hopefully close. Uh, but I was like, oh, yeah, the the problem is we have all these big primes, you know, that's where these contracts go. And then it's not that big of a deal. You know, when they get a Sibber style funding, they're like, that's, that's small compared to the money we kind of look for. Uh, so it's not that big of a deal. So maybe the product you get's good, maybe it's not but you know i mean we have we have simulators that are busted that you have it's assumed hey if i'm going to go fly the sim there's no attrition you know like the sims are going to work cuz of the sims uh right but now we have like oh it's like 10 to 20% that the sims break so you have maintenance not effective in your sim which is kind of crazy but then uh we have this problem where these are the primes and then i was like ah oh, sibbers that's like the the frontier where you don't have to worry about the the primes being involved because they have their moats, and then you find out that there's it's just effectively a different moat or a different barrier to entry, and you're like wait so there's there's always a barrier to entry so if it's one person off the street with an amazing tech that could solve the problem, odds are we're not going to see it, and uh, and you're like man that's that's unfortunate because again like my buddy Tron. He literally just makes his own solutions because he's like, Oh, that's a problem. I'll fix it. And I talked to another guy who was like, Yeah, I pursued a Sibber. I had this this thing that would do it. And, and every, everybody I showed thought it was awesome, but I just didn't know the ins and outs of like exactly how to, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's. So I didn't get awarded. And you're like, that's again, I get it. There has to be a process. And if you don't know the process, like maybe that's that is a good barrier, but you would hope that there's there's some you know, it's like the the art more than the science of the whole thing of where you're like that is that is a game changer. We need that.
2: Yeah, and just you know, I would be doing a lot of my friends and people that are doing incredible things in this in this arena a disservice if I didn't say that there are there are people out there who are doing who are making that happen right, and they're getting really creative uh, for that company that you know, maybe didn't win a Sibber, there are incredibly awesome people on the government side that recognize that and want to help and have done alternate type methods of bringing those companies on when it really is a need that the process kind of fails. Um, And and the other aside that I would just make is, so you win a Sibber, then what? You know, like that's a separate pot of money you still have to go find funding to make your make your solution enduring. Otherwise, it's, oh, I worked on this project for a year or for two years and, and then it just went away because nobody could fund it. Like that's not a good story. <laughs> so it's just a tough problem. It really is. Well,
0: and I think, and I get the fact that not every cyber two is going to become a cyber three. Like it is a pyramid structure for a reason because yeah. You're going to, like you said, separate the wheat from the chaff, find the true good nuggets, and those should become the Cyber 3s. But I just want that to be the case. Like the true top percentage that are like, this is a game changer, this is useful tech, makes the Cyber 3. And I don't want to say that inherently doesn't happen, but I don't. I would assume it's probably not a certainty that it always happens uh, for yeah. whatever reason. And, and I think that's one of the, whether they don't have the conversations with the right people, they don't have the right connections or, or they just can't hang on long enough because a lot of people are like, cool. I, I did the cyber one. I did the cyber two. I got the outside funding. I was ready to do the cyber three. They just never called. And then yeah. you're like, well, then we moved on. We and out. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and, and like you said, if, if the government's your only customer and you're not this massive prime, you're probably going to be hurting at some point or another, or you're just going to like live off of Sibbers and just kind of bounce around in Sibbers and tacfies and stratfies and Sibbers. And, you know, which again, if, if that's, if that's how it works, then I guess that's, that's a solution, but uh, it's probably not. That's the one solution. way. That
2: would not be my recommended strategy, but yeah, I, you could. You said, yeah. but that, that would, that's a painful life. <laughs> well, I
0: was, but I was talking with Blake and he said that, uh, Rand Paul actually had uh criticism of the innovation space, of SIVR specifically for that exact reason. It's like companies yeah. had been given tens of millions of dollars in SIVR ones and twos. And you're like, copy. So that was pretty much good money after bad. You know, we just kept funding a, a company to just kind of like dwell in the valley of death and, you know, and, and survive it's like some cactus or something, but, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. well, so before we get going, cause I got to get out of here, uh, how do people contact you? How can they get in touch with you? If they want to uh, work with dare or kind of, you know, be a part of your, uh, connections in the innovation space.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And listen, I, uh, I love the free chicken you're giving me with the plug here. So thank you. <laughs> um, i would I would love to hear from anyone that is interested in working with us. Um, certainly, if someone's interested in throwing down with us on some gnarly problems, uh, we're always hiring. And uh, you can email us at Emma at dareventuregroup dot com and you'll get a line direct to me. Um I'm also on LinkedIn, just under Emma Prisbolowski. And Dare Venture Group is also also on LinkedIn. And our website is www.dareventuregroup.com. So you're welcome to check us out. And we look forward to uh, to meeting anyone interested in talking to us.
0: Yeah, great. And I'll, uh, I'll have your email and then um, in the show notes and then probably the link to the website. And then I'll, I'll uh, at you on uh, LinkedIn so people can also help find you. Uh, if you want to talk to me, uh, vader at com. that's where you can uh, send me emails, tell me how good of a bad job I'm doing, and uh, check out the website, kodiakshack.com. Uh, we're always looking for more people to come on the uh, podcast. And like I said at the beginning, uh, donations are open. We're going to start doing advertising soon because uh, our uh, luckily our viewership has kind of, or listenership most likely, uh, has increased rapidly. Uh, so hopefully uh, we'll start doing some sponsorships for uh, episodes as we move forward forward uh but the link for our donations will be in the uh, show notes as well all right thanks thanks everybody for listening and uh, emma thanks for being on the show
2: thanks vader it's a pleasure